Warning. The program you're about to hear contains language and ideas that may offend some listeners. 30 seconds and counting. This is an unusual dramatic program. Astronauts report it feels good. T minus 25 seconds. The journey into the realm of the strange and 20 seconds and counting. God wants to fill our hearts with dreams and visions. T minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. It isn't right. 12, 11, A little 10, fun, a little swapping of talk and goodwill. Ignition sequence start. Adventures in time five, and space. Five, four, three, two, one. Existential happy hour begins now. If you can make peace with the unlikely fact that squid the size of school buses patrol the dark oceans at a depth that would crush you to paste, then I have faith you can also make peace with the unlikely fact that you are worthy of all the happiness you have imagined. Welcome. To the Crypto Naturalist. So, for the podcast, I'm just going to give a little intro and then we'll be off. And um, you can say whatever you want. Swearing is okay. Self promotion is great. Uh, all I know about you is your book. I don't even know. I mean, I saw like your tweets came into my Twitter feed. Uh, yeah. I bought your book when it came out, and uh, there's a lot that I like about it. And we'll talk about that when I introduce you. Uh, I'll say Jared Anderson is a poet, podcaster. What else are you? What like? What's your? That's good. Poet, <laughs> we can, poet we podcaster. Can, we can keep that simple. Yeah. Okay, and, I think that's how most people know me. Yeah, and your podcast is called the the Crypto Naturalist. Yep. Yeah, and uh, on Twitter at Crypto Nature. You got it. Cool. Sounds good. All right, let's do this then. Cool. Welcome to Existential Happy Hour. My name is Micah J. Murray. Today I'm talking with Jared Anderson. Jared is a poet and a podcaster. He runs the fiction narrative podcast, The Crypto Naturalist. You can find him on Twitter at Crypto Nature. And he's written a book called Field Guide to the Haunted Forest, which is a collection of poems about nature and existence and things like that. And that's how I found Jared through his tweets through his book of poetry, the way that he uses words to talk about nature is just something that resonates with me and uh, my spiritual experience of the world. And so here we are. I'm happy to talk to you, Jared. Welcome to Existential Happy Hour. Thanks, Micah. Really happy to be here. So where did you come from? <laughs> yeah. You can start with the Big Bang if you want, you know, uh, <laughs> back up as far as you like. My memory doesn't quite reach that far. Um, yeah, so I think most people who find me online um, tend to find me through poetry and, and social media. Um, I write a lot about, oh, nature and appreciation of nature, um, existence, death, coming to terms with who we are, making our own meaning. Um my background, um, let's see, how to, how to phrase it. 
So let's start just with home life, um, since I know you you talk a lot about spirituality. So I was I was raised by a couple atheists and agnostics. Um, so that was really my upbringing. Uh, we were all sort of big fans of nature and the natural world, um, and I've always been a book nerd. Just have always loved writing and poetry. Um, you know, I was I was working. I was probably twenty when I decided to go back to college as kind of a non traditional student, um, just because I started taking uh, classes at OSU at a branch campus, just because I enjoyed talking about books. Uh, that sucked me in. I finished a degree in um, English literature and went on to do a master's in literature. Um, coming from an atheist household, um, I was sort of fascinated by the, um, oh, Renaissance English, especially religious themes. I did a lot of classes on, um, the Bible as literature. I wrote my master's thesis on John Milton's Paradise Lost. So, um, but it was different to me. There were a lot of people in my program that had a religious background and to me, it was like, well, I'm discovering this stuff in my 20s, and I think it's interesting. Um, you know, so I've I've resonated with sort of the ideas of, of, of a number of religions. I got real deep into comparative religion classes in uh, college. I accidentally graduated with twice the credits I needed because I just... Oh, no. I wasn't there for any particular practical purpose. I was just, right. you know, interested in classes. Um so all that gets kind of stewed together um, in the kind of poetry and fiction I write. Um, I left a job at a university a few years ago, um, left to help care for a loved one um, who was uh, dealing with uh, dementia. And I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to do a project just for me and try to distill just the things I like to do, which is a combination of fiction on um speculative fantasy stuff and i like to write about <laughs> poetry and existentialism and all that kind of got winded together into the crypto naturalist which is both a fictional podcast but the podcast and the poetry they all kind of blend together um mm. and that podcast became more popular than i was expecting <laughs> so that's always a nice thing yeah yeah so you know it's kind of a, a a strange truism of art. It's like if you do the thing you really want to do, that's what ends up resonating with people because, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've written some novels that didn't sell and some other stuff, and it wasn't until I kind of left aside any agenda of reaching people and started doing exactly what I wanted to that it started to find an audience. So, <laughs> Man, I love that. That's kind of the short version. It's so interesting to me that you uh, come by your atheism uh, or by heritage because uh, myself and many of the folks that I've talked to on the show, many of my listeners and friends uh, would identify somewhere in the, the spectrum of atheist agnostic. Mm -hmm. uh, but for us, like it was a significant traumatic experience yeah. of like completely rejecting, reinventing, re-understanding the world after being in like a fundamentalist Christian framework, yeah. both, both traumatic to like the sense of self shift, right. Of like just 
changing everything about your own identity, but also all the relational and social loss that comes with that. And so, you know, we come, we come to our conversations about God or the absence of God or the non-reality of God through a path that's kind of littered with the debris of the faith that fell apart along the way. Absolutely. Yeah, I come from a, a small rural community in Ohio, so it's not as if uh, those pressures of uh, Christianity didn't exist in my life, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, my wife is, you know, she went through, oh, uh, all of the years of Catholic school, elementary, middle, middle high school, and, um, you, you know, had a similar experience of leaving the faith and coming to terms with that, so... Um, that's, it seems like when I talk about atheism with folks, that is, uh, that is the framework, the lens through which most of the folks I talk to uh, are coming. So it's a slightly different experience with me in that, um, you know, I talked to my wife, Leslie, about reading Paradise Lost or, or, (laughs) you know, me being 25 and reading through the Bible and, and being like, oh, neat. You know, this is, oh, this yeah. is cool. Or this is, and she's kind of like, yeah, I can't see it as neat. I have, it, it, it's brought too much harm yeah. into my life at this point. So, yeah, you know, I, I've sort of started to really feel the appreciation for that. I'm in, I'm in seminary at a fairly progressive and ecumenical seminary. And that specific conversation is one we have often is, uh, there's a significant chunk of folks there, especially folks who come from like liberal Christian or Unitarian Universalist backgrounds who are like Bible is literature. This is neat. Let's talk about, you know, Jesus or whatever. And then there's some of the rest of us who are like, well, you know, we have baggage (laughs) and and our society has baggage, right? I mean, look at white supremacy and everything else, kind of the way that Christianity has fueled that. Uh, but I think, it, I mean, it probably makes so much a difference when you read it. At, you probably never believed that it was real, like metaphysically or morally binding. Right. So, so you know, I can come in and be like, oh, okay, so this is a, this would be a cool way. This would be cool to discuss as metaphor. Yeah. So, so that's a completely different starting point, you know, I think, than a lot of people encounter those writings. Yeah, and it, it's so hard for me to imagine that. And then I read... Uh, for religion class, I read the the myth of uh, what's the name? What's the first myth? Oh, Gilgamesh. Oh, Gilgamesh. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I read Gilgamesh for religion class. Is kind of like here's one of the earliest recorded myths. Sure. And I read it, and I'm like, oh, of course, this guy's doing stuff, and I identified with parts of his journey and like some yeah. of the, the what it was saying about human nature. I re- really vibed with. Uh, and I realized, like, if you could read some of the Old Testament stories, be that, you know, Noah or Samson or David or whatever, it's like, oh, these are larger than life ancient characters doing human things. Yeah. But how do you how do you do that once you've already spent, you know, 30 years reading it as literal? Like, it's it's very hard to cross that divide, I guess. Yeah, I think um, I think there's a fundamental difference, too, if we're talking about um you know, in most of my work, I think about meaning making and how that that is sort of a, um, it's kind of a personal endeavor for everybody. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I kind of, 
I don't particularly believe in any capital T truth or capital M meaning, and and yet I never have felt that as an absence. I I just think that, um, you know, meaning is called upon from different people to do different things, and I think that's fine. And so I think it's meaning happens as an interaction between the person searching for the meaning and their needs and truths and background and 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 then the objective world you know it's sort of in the tension between those two things i think is where where meaning is found so on that viewpoint over here and then if you have sort of the polar opposite being there is one truth it's tied mm-hmm. to one unquestionable being um, and your only goal is to better understand that, uh, like uh, on in terms of epistemology, like the nature of 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 what knowledge is. Those two things are are really at odds with each other. It seems like. Yes, and and the the first thing that you said, I love I love the way that you phrased that because that has been my experience too, and the place that I've come to, which is why why it's called existential happy hour, right? Is like, here we are, we exist for no reason with no given meaning. And then we work to create meaning or derive it from our experience. But yeah, it is. It's just a whole different framework. See, I think some, some people find that very bleak, but it's like, they do. They really do. (laughs) You know, I, I, I wrote some tweet earlier that was like, um, no, I forget what it was exactly, but it was like thinking that there's no inherent meaning in the universe is like it's it's part way to a truth. It's like, yeah, so like take right. the next step that will then because I think some people feel that is a wound, but that's like mm. to me, that's like saying no relationship is worthwhile unless it lasts forever. It's like, well, they don't all last forever. And that doesn't mean that they aren't without meaning, you know. Not everything mm-hmm. is an objective constant in the universe, and that's fine. It's 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 that um, it's also sort of coming to terms with impermanence that y- you can make your meaning, and that meaning may very well and probably will change over your lifetime, mm-hmm. and that doesn't diminish uh, that doesn't diminish what that meaning is, or the project of making meaning, or the project of figuring out much like identity. Right, your identity yeah. is going to be a moving target throughout your life, and the fact that it is fluid doesn't mean it's not worth <laughs> thinking about or building or, or reassessing, you know. Um, but there's a lot of this in our culture, and I think in some theologies, there's a lot of this, uh, you know, forever talk. Well, I think that's a human desire. I think our awareness yeah. of our own mortality, like that we are animals who know we're going to die. Yeah. I think that the, we we wish there was, like— for sure, if there was a good God with a plan who gave objective meaning and promised an afterlife, like that would be lovely. You know, the amount of cognitive dissonance it requires to maintain belief in that, and then the ensuing problem of evil if if God's so smart and good, why is the world so fucked, right? Sure, why is yeah. suffering a fundamental feature of nature? Uh, you know, it raises more questions than it answers, but I think the desire for permanence and for solidity is something that that exists within us and yet the universe grants us no resolution to that desire yeah yeah you know it's 
I'm often thinking of sort of the human animal and our biological brains. And um, it, it has surprised me lately that from my poetry and my, my tweets, occasionally people will come to me um, to talk about dealing with the death of a loved one, which, which you know, was a bit of a shock to me and felt like kind of a serious responsibility. Um, mm. But I write a lot of poetry about it, you know, and a lot about um, the, that a lot of nature is whole and perfect, but isn't measured in breaths, you know, and I think humans get caught up in this. The human way of knowing is the way of knowing. And so there must be an afterlife in which I can continue my human way of knowing. And it's like, all right, well, our human way of knowing is kind of a function of uh, a brain trying to take care of a very specific kind of biological body. You know, we're looking for mm -hmm. patterns so we can find food. Yeah, we want that permanence, but it's because, it, you know, we're trying to establish security in an unsecure world. And, um, you know, in that one thing that we seem to know is that, you know, we leave our human bodies behind. It's like people need to make friends with the idea that, that there are kinds of existence that are still worthy kinds of existence. You know, this, mm -hmm. this it's alive or it's not, it has human knowledge or it's, you know, it has no consciousness. No, it's not awake. It's mm -hmm. always something that is sort of, um, not puzzled me, but lately I'm preoccupied with it as people struggle with their own mortality and the mortality of loved ones. It's, you know, uh, so many people are willing to sit and, and talk about their love for nature and for mountains and for rivers. And it, it's like, okay, well, you know, are you, are you terrified about the time before you were born? You know, are you, are you terrified about the time when you're going to be part of that instead of part of, this one kind of knowing and thinking and um it, it, i think it takes some work yeah. to get to a point where you can kind of um come to terms with it but i have from a personal standpoint i think since i was little i kind of heard descriptions of like your traditional christian heaven and thought well like that sounds terrible so like <laughs> right so it's just a forever sameness a pleasant forever sameness like that's there's nothing in my life or observable world that would tell me that that's a good thing like the idea of forever in any kind of sameness has always struck me as a kind of non-existence um i don't know that carrot never drew me <laughs> as as a as a way of thinking you know yeah well there's yeah. the stick too you know they yeah. got the carrot and the stick and together <laughs> yeah. they're pretty effective yes yeah but yeah, I think that what you're saying, one of the biggest questions that folks ask me about, like when moving from Christianity to, to non-theistic belief or religious naturalism, atheism, whatever, sure. is, is that like question of how do you deal with death? Uh, and for a lot of folks, it's like, it's the fear of hell, but it's also the, wh what do I do if I don't have the comfort of the afterlife with my loved ones? Yeah. And, and I think you're absolutely right that it does require some work to come to terms with it. Um, but I certainly have, and, um, I mean, of course I want to stay alive. I'm an organism. It's what, it's what we sure. do. Yeah. But, uh, but I take comfort, I, you know, in, 
in going out in nature and, and being amongst the trees. And I, there's all these oak trees in the forest uh, around us in Minnesota. And where there's oak trees, there's oak trees rotting on the ground. So I have the canopy above me and then the rotten trunks on the ground. And I look at the rotten trunks on the ground and I think of them as these like old men who are deceased. And and I picture myself lying down amongst them and also rotting into the ground as as just another old oak tree. And and it brings me peace. It brings me comfort. Yeah. It's like I will take my place. And of course, the idea of closing my eyes and never opening them to see my wife or my kids again or of like seeing the ocean for the last time and not knowing like, Oh, we can go back next summer. Like experience yeah. is a, is a gift. And when it's the idea of it being gone is sad, but also like there is, there's a peace that comes from surrendering to nature and our, and our place in it as, as animals. Yeah. It's interesting too. I've, I've always wondered about sort of traditional, um, afterlives. It's, it's, you know, 10 year old me is gone. Like I'm, I mm-hmm. sort of remember ten year old me, but there's no sense in which ten year old me exists, you know. And the same for twenty year old me, you know. I'm I'm forty now, and so it's like I think of these afterlife, and it's like, all right, well, afterlife for who? It, you know, I, I'm such a fluid creature that is changing so much and so constantly, and you know, mm-hmm. even our cells are replaced. I, I say we bury we bury a body when someone dies, but most of the cells that have worn their name are already back in nature. You know, we mm. we're sort of buried in the soil of our lifetimes. And it's it's this it's almost an illusion that we are ever in a state of continuing permanence. You know, yeah, I mean that's that's Buddha's great insight, right? Is that the self is actually no self and that we're just a continuing process and we think like I am a person, but that that itself is an illusion. And I think the comfort in that can come from a couple things. One being, all right, look, I'm always in changing. I'm always in flux. I'll, I'll be in flux now that I am conscious, you know, whatever essence of me there is, if it sets ideas in motion in the world, you know, the, the physical matter, you know, matter can't be created or destroyed. Energy can't be created or destroyed echoes forever. And then if you think of your personality, what you bring to the world is a collection of skills or ideas and those skills and ideas will still exist in the world. I mean, I used to think that when I was, um, before we had our first child, I would occasionally get hit with this idea of like, I don't know, do I want to have children? Like, what about legacy? What about continuing in the world? And then I would always say to myself, it's like, what feature of you doesn't exist somewhere else in the world? And, you know, and then coming to terms with the fact that it all ends at some point, you know, Mm -hmm. the universe, the sun, the earth, what seems to be a constant in 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 the universe in general seems to be systems you know repetition the arising of order the 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 diminishing of order there's just there's just a lot of of cool stuff in nature that is so big and so outside our understanding in a way that is so interesting and magical to me that it's like all right but and we're part of that. I mean, every facet of us is part of that. I mean, it, it, you and I sitting here, our technology, all of it, it's all sort of interwoven into those essential mm-hmm. forces of nature and and 
all kinds of interesting happenstance that that led to <laughs> the cocktail of genes that are all of us individually and collectively. And I mean, I think there is a way to delve into the mystery and to identify yourself as that mystery to kind of break down the kind of arbitrary walls we put up between who we are and nature. It seems like people have a lot easier time loving nature than loving themselves through the same lens. And if you can start to do that, if you can start to see yourself as part of the seasons and part of those oak trees on the ground and the one standing up, I think, I think it really starts to soften that idea that, that you may not be having regular, you know, human conversations a thousand years from now. It's just, yeah. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. And I think that it's so interesting that when I was a Christian, we, our big sales pitch is that we had like the monopoly on peace. Right. And we're like, Uh. you know, if you died right now, would you go to heaven? Do you want to know? Pray to pray. You know, we'll tell you how you can know for sure that you'll have afterlife and all this stuff. Yeah. And and my experience in that and, and many others was that it never delivered peace to the degree that was promised. It, there was a lot. There was sometimes glimmers of peace and then there was a lot of cognitive dissonance and then there was a lot of anxiety of how do I know and what if what if I'm not good enough to get into heaven or, you know, what I, what if who, which me is going to be there and what about my loved ones and all these anxieties. And, and, uh, I, when I think about death, I just think I will be part of all of it, conscious of none of it. And, and I picture the, like you said, the cells and the carbon, the molecules that is my body becoming the roots of a tree. And, and my wife and I talk about this, um, about we want to be buried together and have a tree planted over top of us so that then the matter of our body can be drawn up in and become the body of this tree. And, uh, because I, I get very sad when I think about closing my eyes and, and not seeing her again. And, you know, when you love someone, there's a part of you like, yeah, I want to be with you and experience you consciously and in my presence forever. And the universe just doesn't give us that, but it gives us other ways that if we, if we make meaning, from what the world gives us, we can create a way that we can be together, even though we're not going to be conscious of it. And we can derive comfort from that while we still are conscious. Yeah. There's a kind of, I think there's a kind of wholeness in going through a journey with somebody that you know is, is temporary that I don't think you could access any other way too. I mean, you know, when you build a life with somebody that you know is someday going to be complete there's something about that almost creating like a finite artifact of, of the time together that I think is special in a way that I don't know. I think, I, I think I don't want to say it feels diminished to think of that. And then we continue on forever. But, but to me, it's like, but there's nothing for me um, in the nature. I love the world. I love the people I love that reflects back to me that forever is a good thing. I just, I don't see any examples of that. To me, it almost feels like a way not to, um, I mean, I guess it is, it it is a, and then forever happens, I guess is kind of a way not to have to (laughs) grapple with 
with the big questions of impermanence, right? Mm-hmm. It's just kind of say, oh, no, 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 it's permanent. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I won't say that's never appealed to me for the same reasons you're saying. It's like, yeah, I can, I would... <laughs> I, I, It'd be a I great story if that's how the world worked. <laughs> I don't want to put a expiration date on, you know, the time with the people I love. Um, but it's just that me, my brain, everything about my personality and all the people I love, who they are, their brains, their personality, all of it is built on such a, such a firm, observable foundation of impermanence that mm-hmm. I feel like it really pulls the rug out of everything, everything I love to say that there's a sneaky forever that happens at the end. Um, yeah. yeah, that's a good, I love, I love the, I'm going to start referring to the supernatural realm as the sneaky forever <laughs> and, and cite you in the footnotes. But uh, you know, that's the idea is the, the sneaky that's like, and again, I don't want to shit on us as a species for creating these stories because our desire for them to be true comes from a real place. That's part sure. of how, how we are, but uh, it is kind of a sneaky forever to be like, Oh no, 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 no. There's this whole other, there's a God with a plan and there's a person who's in control and there's someone who loves you and makes sure nothing bad's going to happen to you. And there's a thing that's going to make sure in the end, no matter how shit it gets on earth, it's going to work out to be justice in the afterlife and togetherness. And where is it? Well, it's, it's invisible. It's sneaky, but trust us, it's there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've always, I'm, I'm, I'm generally a very positive person. So I've always tried to find ways to meet people halfway in, in their faith in different ways. And just internally, even I was like, well, yeah, okay. Metaphorically speaking, if God is the entirety of the universe, well, certainly mm-hmm. there is order to all of it. And yeah, it's omnipresent. And you last forever it's like well yeah you do last forever you know it's that same principle of physics matter is not created or destroyed nor is energy it's yeah and then you tie that onto my whole ways of knowing thing it's like all right well i can't believe we are a relatively young species on a relatively young world i cannot believe that human ways of knowing and consciousness are the only worthwhile ways of that's not the only awakeness i don't think in in the universe um so it's like all right so all you put all that together and yeah we are joining the forever (laughs) in the Mm -hmm. end you know it's we time itself is kind of kind of relies on subjective observation right You, you give that up and suddenly you're not measuring things in breaths and minutes and, and things anymore. Is there a way that uh, that some aspect of us as fundamental individual creatures is interwoven into that? I don't know. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's when I think it gets sticky when, you know, you alluded to white supremacy and stuff in the beginning. It gets sticky when part of your belief system is we got it. We got the truth. It's the only truth, um, and there's us and wrong people. Yep. Um, <laughs> and, For and, sure. That was, I mean, that was the official position of, of my entire world growing up, is us and wrong people. Yeah. And that's powerful in itself, right? As, as sort of tribal creatures, um, people love to identify, to define their identity by what they're not, 
and those other people mm-hmm. are wrong. Like in so many different cases, that is such a, an attractive proposition to people, it seems like. And and possibly one that evolved because it gave us an advantage at one point of like this strict suspicion of outsiders and unquestioning allegiance to the group and all these like helped us survive at a time when there was a lot of natural threats. Now that we've populated the earth to the degree we have and invented technology, these same abilities that allowed us to survive 10,000 years ago are giving us the ability to destroy the planet for us and all the other creatures. Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing too. It's, it's the idea of like, um, societal cohesion. Religious Mm -hmm. position is a way to get through that, but you know, you even look at national cohesion or something and it's like, what makes an American an American? It's like, well, I don't know, a shared collection of pop culture references. Like it, it can be so, ephemeral and so um so superficial what what ties a group together too um and i know you know i grew up with some very uh very religious presbyterian cousins and and you know they would try to talk to me about why this presbyterian church was different from that one and it was an interpretation of this passage and um you know, it, it it at the time and a little bit continues to boggle my mind that you have big collections of thinking grown-ups in these buildings dividing themselves in these ways. Um, and yet, you know, as a as a as a non-religious person, kind of since birth, it would then it would then confound me that it's like, okay, well, if you really believe this stuff, um, why aren't you doing more? Like if you literally believe these things, why are some of you rich or Mm -hmm. why are some, you know, it's like, which is it? Um, Are are these things literally true? You know, I see you saying that you're a one issue voter with abortion and yet, you know, I see you driving a sports car and and not uh, giving away your excess to people who need it. It's. And I mean, I, I suppose the secret is that we have kind of infinite capacity to live with cognitive dissonance, right? <laughs> that, well, that's the – as creatures we do and then as systems, at least I can speak to evangelical Christianity, Protestant Christianity in large – you know, there's exceptions, but those religious systems – foster cognitive dissonance and they encourage cognitive errors and things like, you know, don't trust your own self because yourself is wicked. God's spirit is trustworthy. And the only way you can understand the truth is through God's spirit, which transcends your own reason. And so it's like our natural human capacity for cognitive dissonance is then nurtured and fed and increased through the mindset of these religious systems. So by the time you become an adult in this, yeah, it, it's really hard to break out of. And, and honestly, I'm surprised that so many of us are delighted, uh, but surprised because uh, I know from experience how much resistance you have to break through to let all that stuff go and say, no, I'm going to live in the world as it is. Do you think, do you think there's some sort of classic 
abuser psychology in it. The idea that like telling people that they're so broken, nobody else will have them in one way or another like that. You're fundamentally oh, wicked yeah. stuff. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the di- distrust of your own intuition and the distrust of your experience. Um, it, like I said, I can't speak for all of Christianities, but certainly within large swaths of Protestantism and especially evangelical fundamentalism, like one of the core beliefs is do not trust your mind, do not trust your body, do not trust your experience, trust this book as interpreted by your religious community. And so anytime you you feel like this isn't working, you are unable to conceive that perhaps the problem is with the system or the book or the community. It's like, no, the problem must be with me. And all of the, all of the shame and the self-loathing is turned inward. Mm. And instead of being able to direct your anger towards the broken systems that are creating this world that you're trapped in, you're like, no, this, it must be my fault. Try harder, do more, you know? So yeah, yeah, it's, there's a, when it was so shocking to me, uh, when I started getting into therapy about six or seven years ago, um, started understanding boundaries and codependence and agency and, uh, external versus internal locus of control and all of this stuff. And realizing that when you look at a list of like, here's the conditions that cause people to develop codependency, it's like a description of my religious community growing up. It's like, don't let them experiment with things. Don't let them have their own thoughts. You know, it's cut across them, all cut these. Cut them off from other people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The suspicion of outsiders, the, the atheists, atheists must want to be atheists so that they can be gay and kill babies. <laughs> like, you know, the whole thing that anyone who doesn't, Believing God is choosing to not believe the truth, even though they know the truth and they're lying because they want to sin. Like this suspicion of outsiders and the, and the prejudgment of outsiders completely cuts you off from any, because sometimes folks are outside are like, oh, well, why didn't, why didn't these people just stop believing this bullshit? Why don't you just Google it? Why don't you just read a book? You know, and it's like, well, you got to understand there's a, there's a big brainwashing piece here. Yeah. Well, also in like, their whole community and often family and it's all it's all woven together so the isolation and the stakes are high that if you were to find the truth quote unquote or or a different truth and then leave like you'll be disowned you'll lose your community you'll lose your support you know uh, you'll lose your friends And, and even if that's not explicitly stated that's the reality much of the time yeah yeah interrupt our program to bring you commercial advertisements okay if you listen to podcasts i know you have heard ads by now for that website company that offers easy do-it-yourself websites that you can build in a weekend but if you've ever tried to build a website i'm sure you know that it's not always as easy as it sounds. In fact, it can be really frustrating if you don't know what you're doing, despite the ubiquitous promises of a certain podcast advertiser. That's why I created Cavatica Design Company. I've been building websites for about 10 years now, and most of my clients come to me and say, I just wish somebody could handle this for me. 
I make websites that look awesome and are super easy to use and to update and don't cost thousands of dollars. If you have magic inside you that you want to share with the world and you need a website to do it, I'd love to help you out. Go to Cavatica.co, that's C-A-V-A-T-I-C-A, Cavatica.co. Send me a message and when you do, let me know you came from the podcast because podcast listeners get 10% off. This is the part of the podcast where I ask for money. If you love the show, please consider becoming a supporter by donating $5 a month. In addition to my eternal gratitude, supporters get ad-free versions of every episode, so you never have to hear this again. Just go to existentialhappyhour.com slash support. Thanks. We return you now to your regularly scheduled program. You said something earlier that I wanted to uh, go back to because it's something I'm, I'm super curious about, and I spend a lot of time pondering this. And that is ways of knowing in the universe. Uh, you, you mentioned how humans are a young species on a young planet, and yet we tend to assume that our way of knowing is the only way of knowing in the universe. Uh, and this, the the age and and isolation of humans is one thing I, I ponder quite often. Is how when you look at the the global calendar, right? That puts 12 months on the calendar and says humans came on the scene on December 31st at 11:30 PM or whatever. Yeah. And then, uh, y- you know, a hundred million times a hundred million galaxies. And here we are with our one little dot. And I've, I've started reading, um, I read this book called the ends of the worlds about all the different extinction events that have happened on this planet. And it's like, sure. For we, you know, we think, oh, Earth is this beautiful green and blue thing. It's like, no, for most of the existence of even this planet, it's just been fucking rocks and chaos and dinosaurs dying, yeah. and di- dinosaurs dying horrible deaths. Right? And it's like, we t- we're like, what a special planet that it's habitable to humans. And it's like, even for the majority of this life, this planet hasn't been habitable to mammals and and birds and humans, all this stuff. So. So I'm acutely aware of our mathematical insignificance, both in time and space. And when you talk about how, when I think about human consciousness, it's like, it seems like we don't know anything else that does knowing the way we do. And that seems to make us very special. And yet we are very rare. And yet, so are there other places in the universe where consciousness is happening or in what ways like how do you imagine that? What are you curiosity about that? Well, yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think about it in terms of insignificance, right? Because it's like insignificance compared to what? Um, it's... Well, just the sheer number of solar systems, right? <laughs> right, yeah. But like, sometimes sometimes it's like it's hard not to try to set aside your human lens and see things mm-hmm. like how it really is. And sometimes I kind of, even within my own mind, have to think to myself, stop it. Like, you can't do that. Think within a human lens. Like, it's like, is the sun in the sky? No. Also, yes. Um, it, it depends on why you're asking the question. And in terms of, like, consciousness, um, I sure hope so. I hope that there are other kinds of consciousness and um, why do I hope that? Like, 
I, I, it's hard for me to imagine that we're we're looking at a Star Trek Federation kind of situation, right? Where everybody is like humans, but with slightly different foreheads. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, with just the numbers you're talking about, do I think that life exists? I feel like it has to. Um, and then consciousness, like we kind we barely even understand our own consciousness, let alone the other kinds of life forms on this planet. Um, so, yeah, I feel like consciousness often gets paired with a certain kind of life, right? And it's our kind where we don't make our own food from the sun or the earth. We kind of have to get it through a variety of, of grifts one way or another, yes. right? Yeah. Like, without plants, we would be doomed in a way that is so fundamental. Like, we don't have the technology to make food from rainwater and sunlight. We don't have the technology to make oxygen from rainwater and sunlight. The idea that this is a human planet is kind of hilarious, you know? It's mm-hmm. it's like, uh, <laughs> we are here because of a bunch of animals that can stand by themselves in a field and be fine with the resources from outer space and the minerals beneath their feet. And without them, we don't breathe or eat or anything. Um, So, uh, like, it's that human way of knowing thing, right? It's like, but but yeah, but we have computers. (laughs) It's like, okay, well, they're pretty cool. Um, but we are so dependent on life forms that are millions of years older than us and are so much better at living on the planet than us and are so much more efficient at using resources. But what makes us special? Well, it's like our kind of consciousness. Yes, but our kind of consciousness is, has evolved because we are not trees because Mm -hmm. we have to find clever ways to get the things we need because it's not part of our biology. Like, like if this was a Dungeons and Dragons party, we, we would be the rogue in terms of, of the life forms on earth. And so the cleverness that has adapted in us to eat certain animals. Well, we eat all sorts of plants and animals. That's all we do. Um, uh, you know, if not for that cleverness that seems to me as like a real biological feature, like cleverness is our poison fangs. It's our photosynthesis. It's our defining trait that lets us live on the planet. So when we talk about other kinds of consciousness like humans, it's like for me, I'm almost like, okay, so probably because that niche, that niche of like clever creature that has to be clever because their bodies can't survive without cleverness. Yeah, probably. But I think a lot of people ask that in terms of like, we want to find mirrors of ourselves out in, out in the universe. Um, mm-hmm. Right? Like that kind of like, all right, almost as a proof of concept. <laughs> we need to find other yeah. kinds of humans out in the universe. Um, but I say all that and no part of me thinks we are small. Or insignificant because that's that meaning making thing, right? You always get to say, so what? Or in reference to what? Or in context to what? And I think some things people need to learn to be happier in their own skin is that 
in the context of me, in the context of my life. The so what is how it matters to me. And Mm -hmm. giving yourself permission for that to be okay takes work because a a lot of us think that permission needs to come from, you know, a book that is important because it's 2,000 years old. As if 2,000 mm-hmm. years is old. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a, a tradition that's 6,000 years old. or Like, it's that sort of internal versus external locus of control applied to making meaning. Like, Yeah, that's exactly it. I deal with chronic depression, you know, and so I do CBT and all kinds of stuff and have to figure out the radical acceptance part of it and... And a lot of it for me is learning to be like, okay, I get to set my own context. I get to make my own meaning. And then the hard part is taking it seriously. You know, and and I see it a lot echoed in conversations I have with with strangers on the internet, on Twitter, people who are like, you know, oh, you say this and that's neat, but this is what this philosopher says. And I'm always like, okay, (laughs) why is that? You know, I, I get that they're at the point where they still need somebody else's authority to think something. And boy, I think it will be a nicer, I think it would be a nicer world if we could get to the point where all of us sort of found the room within ourselves to to make our own meaning and then take it seriously. Yeah. I, I have no idea if I answered your question because I rambled on there, but... No, but what you said was so, like, it's central to my framework for understanding how to continue to find meaning and existence in a world without a God with a plan, right? Mm. Because that's that's my journey is, like, I believed in the God with a plan until I just couldn't anymore and then was like, okay, now how do we make meaning? And one of the concepts that I came across in seminary last year uh, was called functional ultimacy. And it's the idea that like, even though humans are not ultimate in the sense that like, we did not create the world. Obviously we are not God, obviously in the sense that we are not all powerful, all knowing, blah, blah, blah. Nobody thinks that that's so, so, you know, but we have functional ultimacy in the sense that we aren't really able to derive truth, big T truth from anyone other than ourselves. Yeah. Uh, And it's an illusion within much of religion to think, oh, I'm going to not trust my own intuition and I'm going to trust this book instead. Don't trust, don't you decide, let the book decide. And functional ultimacy just points us to the fact that like, hey, even by letting a book decide, you're deciding because you're deciding what book to trust. Yeah. Uh, And you cannot... You know, the the critique from Christians towards atheists is, oh, they just want to be on the throne of their life. They just want to take authority from God. They just want to be in control. And it's like, no one else can be. Yeah. They're, it's it's not a, because you want to. It's because this is as the world gives us. And you either choose, you either do it actively or passively, but you do it either way. Yeah. I mean, if you go back to the idea that we all live in our own realities to one degree or another and that like, you know, reality is happening inside your brain, you know, we're only getting it through our senses and interpreted by our brains and we are all living in our own realities. Like you're making your own reality as part of being conscious and 
if you couple that with, all right, you're making your own reality and you are kind of steering the ship of your lifetime, are you uh, are you in charge of that? Yeah, to to some degree. Um, yeah. But but I think it is hard. It's been hard for me is to. It's almost like how it's hard to take your own advice. You know, it's hard to take meaning that you made seriously, partly mm-hmm. because it's like you know how it was made. So <laughs> yeah. there's no magic trick to right to think that it might be you know some sort of fundamental aspect of of reality that you've discovered. It's like this is my truth. Um, boy, you talking about critiques of atheism? I'm remembering a teacher I had in high school. It was just openly critical of atheism. And I was sitting there, you know, like, okay, I'm 15. I'm just going to listen to this guy. But at one point, he's like, you know, I don't know why anybody wouldn't be out raping and murdering if not for, <laughs> like, Christianity. It's like, wow, holy shit. <laughs> like, is that your big desire that you're that you're keeping a right. lid on with? <laughs> like, I need to find a way to add you to a list or something. Yeah, it's I- like... As as soon as as soon as mom's not looking, we're gonna start raping and murdering. It's like, well, mom is not the problem here. It's like you're telling on yourself, right? It's, so you don't have <laughs> you don't have empathy, is what you're saying. It has to be completely external, or you don't know why you wouldn't do those things. Yikes! Yeah, well, it, yeah, that's so silly. Also, I mean, that's all the time people from our Christian community are looking at kind of this big wave of of uh ex Christians and and ex evangelicals and being one of the common uh narratives that that the church spins is oh you guys are just doing this because you want to like commit sexual sin and i'm like the this is way more effort than we need to go through if we want to like fucking have an affair or be a pedophile like just do it and then lie about it that's the i mean christianity has no problem with hypocrisy they even have built-in redemption narratives and you can have a pastor who can do horrendous shit and then be like oh well nobody's perfect god died for all our sins and like why would you go through all the work of losing your identity losing your faith losing your community if you could just do it and be a hypocrite about it and fit in fine in the church. Well, rhetorically, they kind of have to make it a shallow reason, right? Yeah. Otherwise, they have to have a real conversation about substantive reasons, which kind of would defeat the whole. It would acknowledge (laughs) that there were substantive reasons and, you know, nobody wants to look at the cracks in their own foundation. Yeah. Yeah. And though, you know, I feel like I'm sitting over on the other spectrum where sometimes you got to stop looking at the cracks in your own system for a minute, you know, like recognizing that your meaning could be fluid, but also taking it seriously uh, means that, you know, it's kind of like the person who's already always questioning their own ability tends to be the person who actually is pretty good at something. <laughs> it's right. Yeah. The yeah. Dunning Kruger effect, right? Like yeah. The, the less skilled you are, the more confident you are. Yes. Right. And if you're really wise, you question, I mean, Socrates, all I know is that I know nothing. Therefore I'm the wisest man. Yeah. Yeah. So I just mean, sometimes I feel like the, the other side of the spectrum from like hardcore, uh, theism is, is like, has trouble. Um, 
I, I don't know. As somebody who's been an atheist my whole life, sometimes the only times I've been like, oh man, church sounds okay, is just like meeting people to help you move. <laughs> you know, it's just like it, it it does a it fulfills, I think, a human need that sometimes I have found lacking. Um although, you know, frankly, I, I haven't gone looking for it. Like I've had a couple Unitarian um people ask me if they could read some of my work and i'm like sure and after the third one happened i was like i need to look up what that is yeah. <laughs> so i think this exists but for me who's did been, you look it up yeah i was like oh okay cool um yeah. but for me it's just like yeah there needs to be another reason for people to meet in a building and talk about philosophy and then have coffee and bad donuts and, you know yeah well, I think one of the things that you're pointing to is the way that, um, you know, I was reading this book by Loyal Rue, who's a sociologist of religion and kind of like, how did religion evolve and how did humans become religious? Mm-hmm. And he talks about the way that like in early, like hunter-gatherer civilizations, um, morality and metaphysics got wedded together and community identity became wrapped up in that. And so that's what you have with religion is morality and metaphysics. God made the world, therefore God gets to say, don't be gay, right? Uh, and therefore, and our community result revolves around those who assent to these to the to our metaphysical narrative and our morality code, our moral code, right? Mm-hmm. And so what we've seen is theism has kind of had a monopoly in many ways on community and on human connection and has has even tried to say like oh you know the church is the only the only thing that can meet this need one of the things that's super interesting to me is trying to imagine like as clearly our society is becoming more secular and and a lot of you know, people are coming out of the church and saying, I don't want to keep making meaning in this way. How do we create new contexts that we can both make meaning together and do ritual and have some sort of like moral alignment, even if it's not absolute. Mm. And yet also find somebody who will be there to help you move because you're right. Like that's, the the casseroles when you have a baby and the helping you move like that's the thing that the church tends to do really well unfortunately the price tag is just belief in a lot of things yeah i mean you know in my in my life we've filled a lot of those gaps with you know friends and gaming groups and stuff that we tend to refer to as found family yeah you know, I, I, I'm an uncle to a lot of kids I'm not related to just through found family and supporting each other and you know, and I love, I love sort of the diversity and um, <laughs> strangeness of my found family, and and um, and that's who helps me move. You know, but mm-hmm. we didn't meet each other through any kind of built-in societal structure that was there to help us meet each other. Um, yeah, unless you count like science fiction writing conventions where I right. met some of these people. And the, adva- the advantage of that for you is, you know, I have a hunch that if you were like, I'm going to dabble in Buddhism for a while, 
all these people wouldn't instantly disown you. Yeah, no. No, honestly, in our group, I feel like the only thing you can really do to get disowned is to show a like willful lack of empathy to mm-hmm. to some sort of marginalized people. Like if there's a moral code that sort of binds us, it's it's just that it's just sort of general acceptance and human empathy. Um you'd have mm-hmm. to really you'd have to really um I don't know, do something that flew in the face of that. It would be the one thing that people I think would think it was immoral in a way that it would be hard to associate with that person. Um Yeah. Which is interesting because it's like, I don't know. Yeah. It hasn't come up, honestly, but. Well, this is one thing that I talk to a lot of folks about who are losing Christianity or losing uh, theistic belief. And there's this question of like, what replaces church? Yeah. You know, where do I, and for so many of us, I mean, I did this. It's like you try over and over again to try try to find a, a different church that will have a different vibe. And, you know, even it'll be very progressive or very open-minded or gay affirming or whatever. Uh, But eventually I think the answer that I came to is like, you don't replace church. Like church, church wasn't really all it was cracked up to be. It often is great community, but it's very contingent community. And also, as is becoming very obvious, if you read any headline any given day, what's really happening in the offices and behind closed doors is completely different than what's happening, what's what's being presented anyways. So this question of like, how do I replace church? It's like, that's, that's not the question. Like, don't try to replace that. Don't try to replace that institutionally as you said, yeah. replace it one relationship at a time. And it sucks because same as, as we were talking earlier, like it would be great if you, if there was a God with a plan, it would be great if there was a community that you could just boom, have instant belonging and family and, and safety and, and be known. The hard reality is you build your web of human connections one at a time yeah, and, and slowly, but then it's a real thing. It's not just an illusion that you've bought into. Yeah, I mean, I occasionally catch myself missing grad school. And honestly, what I'm missing is not grad school. What I'm missing is having to show up a couple times a week with a bunch of people who share my interests and then like mm-hmm. grading papers at a at a bar <laughs> at noon, you know, drinking beer and eating french fries. It's just that sort of structure that puts you next to people with some sort of shared values or interests. It's... But, I mean, you're right. We're talking about making meaning. You also kind of make your community and taking an active hand in that, yep, Mm -hmm. is harder than having it handed to you and yet doesn't come with all the dangers and abuses of doing it the easy way. Yeah. Of having it handed to you in one way or another. Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes I, I, Sometimes I see people who are full devotees of one one philosopher or another in a way that makes me feel like, okay, that's, I feel like you are doing theism, but on, you know, you've, you've projected it onto this one philosopher, this one personality. And, um, I, I don't want to paint with a broad brush saying that, but cause that's not everybody. Certainly it's great to read a bunch of different ideas. Um, but, but sometimes I see it and think like you're, 
they did the exercise. They can't do the mm-hmm. exercise for you. It, right. It, you know, like reading a book yeah. about exercising isn't the same as, as exercising. Like it hurts and it's hard and there will be challenges and expectations that will be deflated and new discoveries. And it's like, but you kind of have to do it yourself to get to get to a meaning that wasn't mass produced in one way or another, mm. you know? You want locally sourced, handcrafted, artisanal meaning. Farm to table. Yeah. <laughs> farm to table meaning. Yes. I'm here for it. <laughs> I support yeah. it. Um, one one thing that I wanted to ask you about was about this, the relationship between making meaning and living with depression. Sure. Because, um, you know, it's it's relatively easy to idealize the idea of deriving meaning from nature or from being an animal. And, you know, I am a big fan of Emerson and and his like lovely idealization of nature. Um, and I live in Minnesota. I live near some some woods. I go walk in the woods. I look at the creek. Uh, during the summer, it's it's super nice. During the winter, it's fairly harsh, but still beautiful. And I know, like, I happen to be at a moment in my life right now where I have a, a happy relationship. Mm-hmm. My kids are healthy, you know. And so sometimes I feel like it's it's cheap or easy for me to say, oh, just look at the tree. You be a tree too there. Now that's enough meaning. That'll get you through. My question is, though, when those times when you do feel like the depression and I, I, especially I I have seasonal depression. So often November through February, it does feel a lot more bleak, but you know, it's something I have some experience with as well. When you're feeling that depression where everything inside of you says like, there's no fucking point, right? How do you, how does it be enough? Cause the promise of theism was, Oh, Jesus will fill up that void inside of you and blah, 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 whatever, which again would be great if it worked, but it doesn't. I tried it. I know. Trust me. It's not worth your time. But, um, (laughs) but when, how do you, how do you reconcile your, your belief that you can derive enough meaning from the world with the experience of depression that often feels like so profoundly, viscerally meaningless? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the short answer is you don't like there isn't, I don't think there is one way to look at nature that solves depression, which <laughs> fucking, oh, man, you could there be was. so rich if there was <laughs> right? just write a book anyways, just tell them there is and we'll, we'll, you'll get rich. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Um, <laughs> right. Ugh. <laughs> you know, depression is brutal. It's, it's, and it's not just brutal in the sadness or the feeling of, hopelessness or pointlessness it's that for me at least you know the way out has so much to do with active conscious effort in um hearing your own thoughts the sort of automatic thoughts that are playing in your brain constantly and then um pushing back against them you know answering them sort of the that classic cognitive behavioral stuff um has been very effective for me um nature gets added in Oh, how do I, how do I, 
I have a poem about this. Can I read a poem? Please read a poem. I was hoping you would. Hold on. I just I have a poem specifically about this, and I have a book, my book here. Yeah, it's called The Treatment. I can't say spending time in nature heals depression. For me, the outdoors changes sadness from a pain to be endured to a state to be experienced. It's still sadness, but in the context of green growing things under a limitless sky, sadness is simplified, not a wound, a tile in the mosaic. Even so, depression needs more. I resisted trying therapy for a long time because I thought I was too smart for it. Here's the thing. You can't think your way out of depression any more than you can think your way out of drowning. Asking for a life jacket is more important than knowing the physics of buoyancy. So, I don't know. I find peace in being in nature in a whole lot of ways. Um, peace in terms of looking at something older than me, I think wiser than me in a lot of ways, if you get out of that human way of knowing. Um, looking at natural systems at work in in harmony and balance and, and synchronicity, sort of the clockwork, amazing clockwork um, functions of ecology and how it all fits together in ways we don't even understand. And then admiring that and then extending that admiration to yourself to realize that you're not an alien from another dimension observing it. You are, you know, as much part of the nature as the moss and the tree and got here in the same way through the same systems. Um, and so pondering that is helpful. And I also find just being silent in nature is helpful to be around things that are existing and living without constant hammering thoughts that, you know, the trees, the river, the rocks, the plants, the animals, um, their way of knowing isn't our way of knowing their way of feeling and seeing and understanding isn't our ways. And sometimes I think just being there among mm. that different mode of life, um, can kind of let you just breathe and empty out your mind and learn to just say, all right, yeah, depression is a disease. It hurts. Right now I'm just going to be here in the way the trees are. Not because the trees are giving you, handing you your meaning or your reason for meaning, but just because, you know, the trees are going to silently be there and you can sit and silently be there with them for a while. And, you know, let that be enough is kind of an exercise that, that, that I find helpful sometimes. Yeah, man, that's so, that's so helpful. I think because it highlights the difference between thinking about being part of nature and just being part of nature, thinking about going out in the trees or going out in the trees and thinking about what trees are is subtly but very importantly different than just being being with the trees or the sky or whatever what patch of grass whatever nature is accessible to you at any given moment yeah i mean sometimes just going out and laying a hand against a tree and you know i don't know if it's all in my head or what but it's almost that i can feel the life in that wood and then 
to not try to run it all through language, to not right. try to run it all through the filter of, of, of language and narrative. You know, I, I firmly believe we understand the world and our place in it through stories. Um, and I also think sometimes we just need to cut it out. <laughs> As a writer, is that hard? Is it hard to like not be like trying to write a poem about every, Yes, you know, because I same thing. I was like, as I as I've, I'm always like writing an essay in my head about whatever I'm experiencing it. Yeah, you know, and I know there's wisdom in like shut the fuck up and stop doing language. And yet it's like I got to do language. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to be quiet sometimes, but I think that's a big aspect of depression. Because for me, a big aspect of depression is the thoughts that I don't want coming when I don't want them, and so. Mm-hmm learning how to get radio silence inside your own brain is a skill you can get better at. I have found at least. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know, going out there among life forms and landscapes I respect and being quiet with them is, is helpful to me. I think in, in that regard, partly because like I can quiet the voices if I then switch to, I'm just going to listen as hard as I can Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to put my back against this tree and look up and watch the leaves move and just listen or close my eyes and just listen. Um, I have a folding camp chair that I like to hike out and just sit. Uh, And sometimes I take a camera and sometimes I don't. And I'm just like, all right, I'm just going to let the world happen for as long as I can, as long as I can, Um, as long as I can enjoy it you know and i I try to pat myself on the back if i do it for five minutes or if i do it for an hour and a half or whatever um but you know we think of ourselves sometimes as such indoor kids and as if as if a box of drywall really cuts you off from what the rest of the world is but i mean it's just it's just trying to take off the blinders and go be part of that because i feel like for me at least a lot of depression for me ends up being linked to what humans are doing and society and the world and going out to something older than all that and just sitting with it and being a life form in that way rather than being a life form here on Twitter or whatever is, I don't know, feels, feels healing. Yeah. Then you come back and be a life form on Twitter. Yeah. Right about it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. I found this weird little niche of theology called religious naturalism. Cool. I don't I know if are, are you familiar with it at all? No, no. Uh, religious naturalism is a form of like metaphysical atheism. It, like because it, naturalism, it denies any supernatural realm, any spirit world, anything other than nature itself. Mm-hmm. And then it, it wagers that there is within nature enough depth to be worthy of our religious attentions. And it's like taking nature as a broad, like like the broadest lens possible, not nature in the sense of like yeah. forest preserves and green shit, but like but like every molecule within yeah. existence is nature, including computers and and even that like human constructs like societies and language are yeah. nature is all there is. So everything that is must be part of yeah. nature, right? And so so it's looking at all of that. It's like not not idolizing nature because we're sentimental about flowers and trees, but idolizing nature because there's nothing else to direct our attention to. Like 
live in the world as it is. Yeah. Uh, but but a lot of the language is is similar to the language that you use in your book. So, you know, when I when I started seminary two years ago, I was kind of like a existentialist Christian and was like, I don't know whether or not Christianity is true, but I'm going to make it work. And then I very quickly was like, fuck this, let's do something different. And, and I feel now like what I want to do with my theology degree and my work and stuff is kind of create resources for religious naturalism, like sermons, essays, poems, songs, like let's fucking worship the earth because it's real and we, and here we are. So when I read your book, I'm like, man, yeah, that I would love to see a general rise in that idea of philosophy. Because boy, you see so many people who really do talk like they are visitors from another dimension, and that like nature is cute. Yeah, <laughs> it's cute. You know, it's quaint. We, we'll visit it from time to time, but it doesn't really have that much bearing on life. You know, what a weird viewpoint I've always found. I don't know. Well, and you know, people think that without God, you can't be spiritual, but. What what is more spiritual than realizing that you are a creature that is part of nature emerging and then living in accordance with that? Yeah, you know, to me that is that is religion. That is spirituality. Is not interacting with another dimension, but like living as deeply as possible in this one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, if you if you ever want help with that project, let me know. <laughs> I'm happy to I'm happy to do some writing for that. Absolutely. Or, or maybe well, I already do. I don't know. Yeah. You, you for sure do so <laughs> you you have you've written so much. Uh but uh you know we will cool. we'll make meaning, make some good fucking meaning. That's right. Well, it's been so delightful to chat with you. I feel like we could uh talk forever, but you know, we got to go sit in the trees too yeah. and uh uh, I want people to check out your book, Field Guide to the Haunted Forest. Thank you. Yeah, I'm working on a, on another one that that should be along shortly. More more of the similar. Yeah, yeah. That that book is kind of a reflection of of my brain. That's that's what I have to write. Yeah i I really enjoy it. Um, it's the way that you put language to the experience is just really delightful. And um, so if folks want to find you on Twitter at uh, crypto nature. Yep. I'm on all the other ones too. <laughs> yeah. To just give, drop them. So give me a list. I mean, I'm either crypto nature or crypto naturalist on all of them. I, I honestly don't know off the top of my head, but if you search the crypto naturalist, um, you will find me. Sounds good. And your podcast by the same name on all the podcast places. Yep. Everywhere or at crypto naturalist.com. Love it. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, I love talking about this stuff. <laughs> oh, it's so fun. I, I, uh, like you said on Twitter, you said uh, it wouldn't be hard getting you talking about meaning and existence. So, nope. Anytime. <laughs> I will be back anytime you like. Sounds good. We'll be here. Do you have a favorite or a timely poem that you would, uh, you would gift us as oh. as our closing of this conversation? Yeah. Let's see. Let's see here. Hold on. I had one in mind. There it is. Okay. All right. This one's called Woodland You. It's easy to look at the contours of a forest and feel a bone-deep love for nature. 
It's less easy to remember that the contours of your own body represent the exact same nature. The pathways of your mind, your dreams, dark and strange as sprouts curling beneath a flat rock. Your regret, bitter as the citrus rot of old cut grass. It's the same nature that you make time to love, that you practice loving. The forest, the meadow, the sweeping arm of a galaxy. You are as natural as any postcard landscape and deserve the same love. That's it. That's Existential Happy Hour. I'm Micah J. Murray. Thanks for joining me today. There's a website, existentialhappyhour.com. Check it out. You'll find all the podcast episodes there, notes, links to guests, merch, all the cool stuff. It's on there. Also, Instagram, Twitter, Existential Happy Hour. Look it up. You can also connect with me directly on Instagram or Twitter at Micah J. Murray, MicahJMurray.com. Send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. Shout out to some folks who helped me make this awesome. Art for the podcast was designed by my friend Lucas Tanell with photos from the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. The countdown you heard at the beginning was the voice of Jack King from the Apollo 11 mission, which sent humans to the surface of the moon in the summer of 1969. Music for the podcast was created by Nerd Mac Music. Thanks most of all to you for listening. Subscribe on iTunes. Give me a five stars. You know the drill. Tell your friends, blah, blah, whatever. See you next time. Thanks. Thank you.